Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Talks Talk. This is Matt Zuckerman. On this episode, we have our best of 2011, where a panel of people from the UMass Division of Toxicology will talk about our favorite tox-related articles from this year. Additionally, uh, Stephanie has a special request for listeners, so stay tuned for that. Once again, Tox Talk is a production of the UMass Division of Toxicology at the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester. So this is Stephanie Weiss, the intern member of Tax Talk, and we would like to start a new segment, but I need some help from the medical student and resident listeners. What we would like to do is turn this whole pimping the intern thing on its head and have a new stump the toxicologist segment. What I would like to ask you to do is send me your questions, that we, and we will, on the next edition, try to uh, stump, stump Ed Boyer. Please send questions that we can use to stump Ed to Stephanie at ToxTalk.org. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E at T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot org. And Ed will not know what the question is going to be ahead of time. I will pick a question and read it to him, and he'll hear it for the first time on the podcast. And we will see if we can stump the toxicologist. Next up, uh, our feature segment, the best articles of 2011. Hello, and welcome to uh, our best of 2011 edition of Talks Talk. This is a segment where we've got a panel of expert toxicologists ready to discuss some of their favorite articles of 2011. So I'm Matt Zuckerman, UMass uh, Toxicology Fellow. I'm Christina Hernan, a toxicology attending at UMass. I'm Ed Boyer. I'm one of the toxicologists here. I'm Richard Church. I'm one of the toxicology attendings at UMass. Stephanie Weiss. I'm an intern at UMass. So the article that I have is Snakebite as a Novel Form of Substance Abuse, Personality Profiles and Cultural Perspectives. And this is an amazing article on several levels. One is the fact that people are purposefully subjecting themselves to being bitten by snakes in order to get high. And the other thing that's really hilarious about this article is that it was written by psychiatrists in India who were trying to basically figure out the qualities of the, of the type of people who would undergo this type of substance abuse. So looking at things like um, how, how, what was the thing that was the funniest? There was something about... I think the getting bit by snakes on purpose is pretty funny. Oh, okay. So it is pretty funny. So some of the things that, so they, um, so it was done by psychiatrists and some of the things they were looking at, they actually had two cases and they were analyzing the patients in terms of things like how neurotic they are, how extroverted they are, how conscientious they are, and how agreeable they are. The second patient in this article uh, was also apparently quite into robbing people and harassing his relatives and neighbors. So uh, he was the one who went to an urban slum where, according to the authors of this article, these services, meaning snake charmers who provide snakes that will bite paying customers, are readily available. 
See, I thought you were talking about Worcester until you got to the snake charmers on the streets bit. <laughs> Robbing, bothering family and neighbors and things. That sounds like that sounds like Worcester. Except for the snake charmers. Except for the snake charmers. Yeah, if it was in Worcester, they'd probably have the wrong snake. Yeah. Probably, I'm not high. So one of the things that they also mention in the article is that it's important to be bitten more by an elapid type of snake as opposed to a curlid because the uh, local damage is just not good. <laughs> Besides the fact that you want to have neurosymptoms as opposed to hematological symptoms. It's really funny. And the, the last line of this article is also funny. It says, The fact that snakes share a reverential place in Hindu mythology, are worshipped in the Indian culture, and are easily available seem to have contributed to the choice of using this potentially lethal form of substance abuse. Okay. I don't know if that study is generalizable <laughs> outside of the patient population it was in. <coughs> Which was an N of two, no less. And yet it feels like I know these people. I've seen <laughs> patients like this before. Yeah, this... There's quite a few gems in here. There's, here's another one. Given the role of nicotinic acetylcholine receptors in rewarding or euphoric experiences associated with substance use mediated through the mesolimbic dopaminergic system, it seems plausible to assume that the pleasurable, pleasurable experiences described by our patients may be mediated by the same pathway. I feel like the mesolimbic system is kind of like the black box trash can explanation of the brain. Why do people do that? Well, it stimulates these receptors that then go into the mesolimbic system and anything can happen from there. Now, you people out in podcast land can't see it, but I'm actually waving my hands. It's what we call, what we call a hand-waving argument where you don't really have any scientific basis for what you're saying. I think Matt's exactly right. The mesolimbic system gets invoked in all kinds of nonsense. And um, you know, where real science begins and where real science ends and where the nonsense begins to come out, I think it's a little bit unclear to, to everybody else. One, one thing I find interesting about this paper is um, right now the DSM, what is it, DSM-4 now? <clears throat> it's undergoing another revision. And at the end of DSM-4 are the cultural beliefs or culturally specific uh, beliefs or patterns of behavior which have been observed only in, in narrow areas, but they feel still feel the need to incorporate it into the DSM. Um, I don't know if this actually rises to it, but it'd be fascinating to see if they add it. There's incidentally an awful lot of argument whether or not you need to include that because you know, like the DSM line of you know, diagnostic criteria clearly are generated in North America and Western Europe, and a lot of people from outside Western Europe and North America say that it's a very, you know, uh, very Western approach to medicine and a very uh, ethnocentric viewpoint, which stigmatizes other uh, stigmatizes other cultures. So it'll be interesting to see if that actually survives. But I got to tell you, as long as people keep letting snakes bite themselves to try and get high, it seems like maybe, perhaps, there's a role for that sort of thing in the DSM. Well, and that's the controversy about the DSM, not to get into this too much, but it's a very, it's it's a Western ethnocentric view of the world that is used internationally. And so our conception of schizophrenia or depression might be normal, you know, social norms in another place. And that's a very controversial topic, because as we export the DSM to other countries, we export our pharmacopoeia to other countries too. And so now we're treating people with schizophrenia and depression, treating this... You know, where there's a drug, there's a way. And so now internationally, we're using these drugs in areas where the mental illness is not really our mental illness and sort of forcing people into boxes. And that's very controversial. The flip side argument to that is, you know what? Maybe they're not the exact same type of crazy, but here in that story, we've all got a cousin like that. We know it's crazy. And so what you're saying about, like, these people sound like they could be in Worcester is true. Like, will you hear somebody in Worcester getting bitten by snakes? No. But do you know somebody in Worcester who has done something really, really dumb like, Which involves putting something into your body. <laughs> yeah, we're toxicologists. We hear that all the time. Yeah, exactly. So that's sort of the DSM thing. Actually, the other interesting <laughs> thing about this article um, that I like is it leads to my best of. But um, are there any other interesting tidbits in that article? And there are other jewels of sentences, but those, I would say, are the highlights. And it's uh, the articles from Substance Abuse in... Uh, Issue 32, pages 43 to 46. There's their 2011. Fantastic. And I will. there will be links to all of these articles on the website at talkstop.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Um, but my favorite article, and it wasn't just so much an article as a phenomenon, talks phenomenon this year, was the um, AHA versus ACMT versus multiple toxicologic societies um, sort of um, smackdown 
over treatment of snake bites. And uh, this is something that's been mentioned a little bit on other podcasts and kind of gets a passing reference. But um, essentially, for a long time, uh, the Poison Control Centers of America and Europe and the Toxicologic Associations have had recommendations for how to treat snake bites, very much kind of indicating crotalid versus elapid snake bites. And for a long time, pressure mobilization in the in North America and the United States was not recommended. And then in their recent guidelines um, in circulation, the AHA decided to comment on um, jellyfish stings and rattlesnake bites and a whole host of things that don't really seem to have anything to do with ACLS. Um, or, or cardiology for that matter. Or cardiology for that matter. And in their infinite wisdom, they decided to sort of ignore a huge amount of data and a huge number of toxicologists in giving this tox recommendation. And they did recommend pressure mobilization and inserting two fingers underneath an ace wrap to make sure you get the right pressure. And, um, and they cited data that didn't really support their case, that used other snakes. Because the real issue is with uh, crotalid envenomation, which is what we have in the United States, the biggest danger after a bite is local tissue injury, which is kind of what Stephanie was alluding to in terms of a lapid. With a lapid, you get systemic symptoms. So keeping the systemic poison from getting to the body makes sense. Pressure mobilization to decrease lymphatic direct flow to the body makes a lot of sense. But when you are in Illinois and you get bit by a snake, or Texas and you get bit by a snake, um, unless it's an elapid envenomation, pressure mobilization is not the way to go. And in addition to that, it was just a turf war. You know, it was it was um, it was covered in uh, in clinical toxicology. There's an editorial comment, and there's been some back and forth. But everyone's been very political. But essentially, it was cardiologists sitting down and giving tox recommendations. Which I don't know. I think I think I want to be the first one to call up our uh, interventional cardiologists and say, "Hey, we got somebody who get got bit by a snake bite. Can you take him to the cath lab and just see what they say?" My response is I'm going to issue my own recommendation for treating MI. And because I'm a toxicologist, it's going to be with benzos and bicarb. You heard it here first. ACLS, or sorry, TCLS? We don't know. ATLS? Because for all you people out in podcast land, that's not a recommendation that we are making medically on on this podcast. I'm telling you right now, benzos and bicarb for MI. Don't listen to the cardiologists. (laughs) And again, that's a joke, people. And remember, if you want to get high from snake bite, stick with the elapids. Yeah, we, we're not recommending anyone here get bit by a snake um, either. Um, although, if you hear this article and and do it, um, I don't know. Darwin, Let us know. We'll write you up. <laughs> yes, that would be a new phenomenon. Pre-notice of, of overdose and toxicologic uh, case reports. Ooh, I bet we could get in trouble for that. We probably could. A lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. So that's a joke, too. <laughs> so... <laughs> None of the opinions expressed on Talkstock are formal medical recommendations and should be viewed as satire. Uh, so, yes. Anyway, but that was, I just thought that was an interesting phenomenon. It was a back and forth. And um, uh, circulation, the AHA still hasn't, um, hasn't changed their recommendations. Everyone's really sick. <coughs> just cough it out. I'm crying. Why don't we, what is, and why doesn't everyone have water? I've got coffee. It should help. So while we're commenting on uh, major trends and competition in major organizations, I thought it was interesting to note a significant report that comes out all the time. The Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the MMWR, has had a few reports in the last few months that are really taking note of what I think is just an amazing phenomenon and epidemic trend in this country right now. And essentially, in the last few years, the death rates due to overdose from prescription, non-prescription, and street drugs of any kind has basically been gradually surpassing the death rates due to motor vehicle accidents, suicide, and other major killers of the young adult population. And really what happened in November, the November 4th MMWR, is that they basically came out and said that now nationwide the transition has really happened, that the number one killer of the adult population, basically ages 15 to 45 in some reports, and about 20 to 60 in other reports, is basically opioid, non-prescription, prescription drugs, street drugs, and all those drug deaths have surpassed motor vehicle accidents, suicide, and all the other um, main killers for all of time, essentially. And they highlight that the trend is just skyrocketing at this point. In 2008, they gave us a, some comparison numbers 
and said the motor vehicle deaths in 2008 were 39,973. The drug overdose deaths in 2008 were about 36,000. But by 2009, 2010, and coming into 2011, that number is now topped with drug overdose, and including all the different kinds. Basically, in 2009, there were 1.2 million emergency department visits related to the misuse or abuse of pharmaceuticals, which is a 98% increase since five years before that in 2004. And of that 1.2 million emergency department visits, one million of them were related to illicit drugs, to um, heroin and cocaine. But now the transition has happened that prescription drugs, whether they're actually prescribed or not prescribed for the person who's ingesting them, has actually surpassed the death rate from heroin and cocaine combined. I just think this trend of the the opioid use in this country really needs to be acknowledged as an epidemic at this point. I don't think it's, it feels like it's being addressed um, on a national level or federal level or state level in a way that really respects the epidemic that is taking place right here. A lot of states are coming out with the prescription drug monitoring programs. There's certainly a lot of NIH dollars that are being invested towards opioid research. But when you look at the fact that motor vehicle accidents used to be such an epidemic and it was acknowledged in a way with major federal regulation that changed the way cars are built and safety um, issues are regulated, that without any kind of intervention, I think our opioid epidemic is heading to that same kind of degree. And I think it just is worth taking note of right now. We're number one. We're <laughs> number one. <laughs> well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, cars have gotten safer. Just as we now have anti-lock brakes on cars, you know, kind of in the opposite direction, we've taken the brakes off our ability to prescribe opioid analgesics to patients because it's now the fifth vital sign. It's something that we have to assess patients on repeatedly. And, you know, there have been a couple of lawsuits. I don't know how successful they've been. But there have been a couple of lawsuits that have been brought against physicians on refusal to treat pain. So, you know, there's an awful lot of impulse in medicine right now to drive people towards prescribing ever greater amounts of analgesics. But it's interesting. A few weeks ago, there was a, um, a roundtable discussion in one of the uh, emergency medicine monthly throwaway articles. I, I think it was ASAP, but one person who's a national leader in emergency medicine said, you've never created an addict by making by, by prescribing opioid analgesics in the emergency department. You've never treated an addict by withholding opioid analgesics from somebody in the emergency department. And I think a, a little bit more realistic assessment of the literature is in order uh, in light of those comments. Those are great as sound bites, but they don't stand up to scrutiny. If you look at NIH-funded uh, investigations, and these were conducted at Johns Hopkins University, where they take people who are not opioid-dependent, they don't take opioid analgesics at baseline, you give them an opioid analgesic, and then you wait until the analgesic effect has worn off. So these people report no drowsiness, they had no alteration in vital signs, no change in pupillary patterns, nothing that you could identify overtly as being... Uh, related to the uh, analgesic effects at the mu receptor for opioids. And then you give them Narcan. They actually developed clinically overt signs of withdrawal. So the implication of that is that the ability to develop dependence persists after the analgesic effect has worn off. So if you prescribe, <clears throat> if you prescribe opioid analgesics and patients take them according to the analgesic effect, yes, you can develop, according to this research, you can develop dependence off fairly, at least beginning to dependence off fairly short courses of opioid analgesics. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, can you treat opioids, opioid-dependent patients when they come into the ED? There's an awful lot of NIH money being directed towards uh, structured brief interventions and referral to treatment for not only alcohol, not only smoking, not only high blood pressure, motor vehicle crashes or trauma, but also opioid analgesic and other forms of substance abuse. So, you know, the emergency department is actually a reasonable location in which interventions can be performed uh, that directly uh, that directly assault the problem of opioid analgesic death in this country. Well, and I think the other reason why it's a good place to do an intervention is similarly, 
Um, you don't always do grief interventions for alcohol in alcoholics. You often do it in trauma that has precipitated by an alcohol use. And right. the ED attracts the patient population that needs the intervention. Lots of opiate users, um, lots of them get it from their you know, doctor, their primary physician, or multiple physicians. But when they can't get it, everyone knows to go to the ED and to try to score some, you know, oxycodone or, or Dilaudid or something else. And so I think it would be a good area of uh, intervention for that. It really does get under my skin just as a physician whenever I talk to a patient and I say, oh, what are you taking for pain? And they go, I'm not, oh, I'm not taking anything for pain. And I'm like, you're not taking Tylenol or Motrin or anything? Oh, no, 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 but I'm not taking any pain medicine. And in many countries, when you have pain, you get a non-narcotic pain reliever. And I'm a huge fan of narcotic pain relievers, um, not personally, but in my practice. Um, but it just frustrates me, this concept, this mindset, um, and this upgrade mindset. Whenever I give somebody a prescription for an opiate or a Vicodin, I often tell them you can take ibuprofen also as your baseline pain medication. You can take this on top of it. Um, I find a lot of patients internalize and a lot of physicians reinforce this. They go, oh, that isn't covering it. So you should take this medication, almost like an upgrade. Yeah. So if you ever try to send somebody out with a pain-related complaint without a prescription for a Schedule II um, opioid, they look at you like you don't care, like you're an idiot if you try to tell them. And then I have to explain to them um, why I'm giving them a non-narcotic pain medication um, which nobody's ever done before, I yeah. feel like, sometimes. Yeah, and if you're one of those people who think that, well, these chronic pain patients, really, they don't come into the emergency department all that often, that may not necessarily be true either. In Florida, for example, Dade County, Florida, had more pain clinics in it than, I think, McDonald's. And recently, they enacted legislation in Florida designed to curtail the operations and prescribing of opioid analgesics from all these so-called pain clinics. The unintended consequence of that legislation is that it has driven a number of patients to seek opioids uh, in, a, in a different setting, and one of the most convenient settings in which to obtain these drugs is an emergency department, so that there are at least two, uh, there are at least two emergency departments which have op you know, enacted management of chronic pain patients in the ED. They will come to you guys if there's anything that's created which is going to inhibit access to these drugs. And inhibiting access to these drugs comes in the form of physician education uh, to reinforce uh, correct indications for pain prescribing, uh, to reinforce proper pain prescribing practices. It comes in the form of prescription monitoring programs. And you know, it comes under, honestly, from the threat of the DEA coming by and throwing you in jail if you are an outpatient doctor and you simply prescribe too many to your patients. If they can, if the DEA can walk up and throw Harvard professors in jail for writing chronic pain, for managing chronic pain patients and prescribing oxycontin. Um, it's pretty. It's, it's it's pretty easy to imagine that just about anybody could. So, what do each of you do in terms of managing patients who come in with chronic pain? What's kind of your philosophy and, and plan each time? Are they nice? <clears throat> uh, regardless. Okay, let's say they are nice. You like them, but they're coming to see you because hey. You know, Dr. Zuckerman gave me all these pain meds last time, so is he working tonight? Yeah, what's your, what's your philosophy, your strategy, your approach? I mean, I, I tend to take a multidisciplinary approach. I, I find myself having much longer conversations with these folks, as Dr. Zuckerman does, uh, about, you know, how long has the pain been going on? Who have you, who have you sought to help you with treatment of this? What is your end point of all this? Because oftentimes we're talking about back pain and dental pain. Have you seen a dentist? Do you have dental insurance and all these kind types of things? Um, what are you taking for your pain? And why is it that you don't consider, you know, nonsteroidal and inflammatories and regular Tylenol products as analgesics? What is your interest in me doing a dental block or not? Um, and what are we going to be doing going forward? You know, as far as speaking with a primary care physician, speaking with another service provider and letting them know that the emergency department is not the place for them to come for return visits for pain management because it is not a pain management facility uh, in the chronic sense and that I get to be their doctor today, but I'm not their doctor going forward. Um, that's the way that I approach it. Uh, I try to, 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 to not get jaded by it. I try to take, you know, look at each encounter as a new encounter with a different person. But as you can imagine, if you're working a prompt care shift for 12 hours and you see 30 of these people, it's very easy to fall into 
or to slide into the practice of, I'm just going to cut them a script and get them out of here. And I don't want to have to deal with the hassle and have this conversation for the 30th time. Um, it's, you know, at least right now in the short term, it, I think it's important to try and have those conversations. Now, granted, I'm still a relatively new physician. I'm probably more willing than some others to have those conversations. Um, you know, I'm a part of the prescription monitoring program in Massachusetts. And so I'm able to use that to my advantage and to print out their history and hand it to them and say, this is your prescription history in the state of Massachusetts for the course of the last year. You've gone to this many pharmacies, you've gotten this many prescriptions, and I see it to be a problem. And today we're not going to be getting narcotic analgesia. You know, I, I, I'm happy to give you a dental block. I'm happy to give you NSAIDs. I'm happy to give you the numbers for free dental clinics. Um, I'm happy to call your primary care physician, but, you know, it's important that they recognize that we are recognizing the problem. Um, and I think these PMPs are sort of the, uh, at least helping. Uh, I've noticed that a lot of my colleagues are that, you know, especially here at UMass that have access to that, they're finding that it's helpful um, in their ability to have uh, interactions with these folks. And it's no longer so contentious because it's not this, you're lying to me and no, I'm not, no, I'm not lying to you and all this kind of stuff because we now have objective data that we can hand them. Um, so, that's the way that I try to approach it. You you touched on an interesting point there, Rich. There's There's been some research looking at uh, opioid prescribing practices of physicians, not emergency physicians. But the, the interesting finding was that the greatest predictor of who got opioids was actually the physician. It wasn't the injury, duration, amount of pain, anything. It was related to the physician. And the doctors who were most willing to write for larger amounts of scripts larger volume of dosage units of opioid analgesics were physicians who have been out of training three years or less. So I don't know what that what that says about how we're training people, but you know, we know that training to manage chronic pain is not in not often in medical school curricula. I don't believe it's in a lot of emergency medicine residency training curricula. And I think it's something that we clearly need to clearly need to beef up a little bit. There's definitely quite a bit of variation just from my experience as an intern working with different faculty in the pod. There's quite a bit of variation in people's styles and willingness to prescribe opioids. And there's um, there's good data also that these are draining, draining patients. And um, for a resident who is, you know, still unsure about if they even made the right decision in their life, I, I've known numerous people who inundated with pain patients um, that really suck a lot of the energy and enthusiasm out of them. Patients that will never be happy unless you give them a prescription. That's demoralizing as a physician to go into an encounter that you know is going to take longer than any other county you have that day where you know that you are unlikely to change the over greater all outcome and where you know that the patient is going to be upset at you and not happy regardless of what you do. Who wants to walk into that encounter, which is one of the reasons why prompt care, fast track, and the shifts where low acuity, vague pain complaints become the bane of the emergency physician. Additionally, those tend to be the busiest shifts, the shifts where you have the least amount of time to log into a cumbersome um, uh, prescription monitoring program and look into it. But Matt, I, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I don't think they, um, I don't think that all patients go home angry. I don't think that all patients uh, expect. I mean, they might expect to go home to scripts, but they're yeah, like I think there is an approach where you can help people uh, go home with without without a, a prescription for opioid analgesics. One thing that's interesting about chronic pain patients is they don't want to have chronic pain. They didn't you know, they didn't start their life saying yes, I'm going to be an annoying chronic pain patient for the rest of my days. By the same token, they view themselves as needing drugs just to function, as opposed to a drug addict who can't function because of drugs. So once you recognize that about the chronic pain patients, it allows a couple of different uh, interventions to take place, or at least approaches to patient management that you can use in the emergency department. What I do is I just say, you know, I, I say outright, you know, like, I know you don't mean to be a chronic pain patient. I know it's not the way you wanted your life to go. I know you're not a drug addict, but, and I've already found out at this point what medications I have at home. I say, but you've got more and better medications than what I can offer you here in the emergency department. You're going to be more comfortable at home. You're going to suffer here. You're going to suffer at home. Don't you think you'd be more comfortable suffering at least where your, like where where your life is, as opposed to here? And it's 
it's been remarkable to me the number of patients who go, yeah, I'll do that, just because I've acknowledged the fact that their life sucks, and they don't want to have chronic pain, and they don't want to be in the ED, and they're willing to leave. I mean, they may not be happy, they may not be you know, like throwing flowers as they walk out the walk out the front door of the emergency department, but at least they're not you know, like walking out screaming at the top of their lungs. The other approach that I take is I say, you know, like, I'm happy to manage for, for people who have clear non-indications for opioid analgesia, I'll just, you know, like you do, Rich, I'll just, I'll just say, you know, like, I'm happy to help you manage your pain in whatever way works best, but it will not involve opioid analgesics. Narcotics are not the treatment for your pain, so I'm going to recommend a number of things that work better, and we can decide on what it is, but narcotics will not be part of it. And, you know, like, if you, if you approach things, you know, like, directly, and honestly and acknowledge that they have pain and you're willing to do things for them, then once again, patients may not be, be cussing at you when they walk out the door, but at least they'll be walking out the door faster than if they, uh, you know, if you engage into the argument of, you know, I don't think we can do this. Right. And I agree. I mean, I think, I think that um, it's, it's amazing once you establish limits and boundaries and expectations and empathize with somebody who's in front of you in pain, how that goes a long, long way. Primaries are great with these patients. I've called some primaries and they've been like, oh yeah, I'll see them tomorrow. We've got to manage it. we got to adjust it. Pain contracts are a great way of doing this. I had a primary the other day though, a woman who was chronic abdominal pain came into the ED all the time. And I said, uh, she was waiting for an MRI to diagnose something because she was sure the MRI would find something. And I said, you know, if it doesn't, then you're still somebody with chronic pain. And, um, and all she said is, my doctor doesn't give opioids. And I said, okay, well, what's your what's your pain management plan currently with your primary? She, we don't have one. She won't give opioids. And I thought, this woman is just being silly. She's dismissing her doctor. They've obviously had conversations. So I call the primary, which on a busy ED shift is not always the easiest thing to do. And the first words out of the primary's mouth are, I don't prescribe opioids. And I said, okay, I understand you don't prescribe opioids. What's your pain management plan with this patient? I don't prescribe opioids. Oh, okay. She's coming to the emergency department a lot. What have you tried with her? What are you going to try with her? Are you referring her to a pain clinic? I don't prescribe opioids. And as much as opioids have sadly narrowed the discussion with patients, in some provider's mind, they've narrowed the discussion also. Making yourself an oxy-free ED makes you feel better, but it still doesn't substitute for the conversations that need to happen. In, in 2000, 2006, Wilson Compton at NIDA, Wilson Compton and Nora Volkoff at, at NIDA, published a paper looking at opioid uh, opioid analgesic rates of abuse and addiction, and, and also misuse too, and they highlighted that a lot of pain management has been shunted by insurance companies from pain clinics to primary care physicians. So they're taking it from the people who were more expensive and knew what to do to manage pain in a multimodal, multimodal multidisciplinary approach, and they put it in the hands of the people who are least capable of spending time to find out what the correct multimodal approach to pain is. So the response to a lot of primary care physicians has been just to prescribe narcotic analgesics. And I would imagine that the primary care physician you were talking to had started off down that pathway and then just been burned a couple of times and I was sick of dealing with it. And it's just easier for him to, or her, to not prescribe opioid analgesics than it is to actually help the patients to a, uh, a life as relief from suffering as possible. And that's kind of sad because the patient suffers uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we've got a nation of addicts that we have made, that we as physicians have made. And I, I think actually this is a good uh, time to uh, kind of plug and mention that, I mean, it's such an issue that the spring conference, the pre-symposium is going to be on prescription opioid abuse. That's uh, in... Uh, uh, in San Diego in March. Uh, and so anyone who's kind of interested by this topic or wants to get more information, any toxicologists out there, this really is our field. We, whether we want it or not, it's sort of on our doorstep and uh, emergency physicians also. And so uh, heading to that conference, the pre-symposium before the spring ACMT conference in San Diego, uh, registration still open. Um, I think the other thing in terms of the reason why this has become number one is our treatment of MBAs, has, our, our mortality from MBAs has reported has decreased just dramatically. Um, I think it's a little different, though, because with an MVA, you're not just treating one person. You're also treating the people around them that were hit by their car. With opioid abuse, it is one person. And so the public health, there's a public health benefit on a population level, but on an intervention level, it's very much like alcoholism, which is one patient at a time. I disagree with that completely. I think if you 
have known anyone who's an opioid addict in your family, just like alcoholism. Yes. You can say for sure. <clears throat> you can say for sure that the impact is so widespread as to parenting and subsequent anxiety and depression in family members that the impact of just dealing with the opioid epidemic creates an additional mental health associated symptoms epidemic that goes right along with it. And just like the car accidents, you're getting multiple people when they, when, when, um, when Ralph Nader came out with his report in 1965, highlighting the problems with the motor vehicle production industry and the lack of safety regulations and commented on the 100,000 deaths per year at that time that were predicted within a 10-year span. It was at something like 70,000 and predicted to be 100,000 deaths. Well, we're starting off at like 30,000, but just a few years back, it was 10,000 deaths. So where's this spiral going? The fact that the big statement in the intervention impacted safety that now has ramifications of saving not just the people that crashed the car, but the people that they crashed into, I really don't think is any different than focusing a huge amount of attention on understanding chronic patients, chronic pain patients, and saving not just them, but the people that are around them as well. I think that's actually, that's a really good way to look at it. Look at the, uh, the chronic pain patient as sort of the, um, the car accident that affects everyone around them. Um, if only we had some sort of seatbelt or airbag for that, uh, but we don't really have that. So looking at interventions, if anyone can come up with a solution, uh, you'll be a millionaire. Now, I wanted to just temporarily interrupt this segment just to let you know where we are recording from this month when we talk about the uh, writing retreat. We're recording this segment at the uh, winter retreat in lovely Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, Ed, would you want to tell the folks at home what the what the retreat entails? It's it's actually a, a writing retreat for for people who are in academic environments who have to publish in order to advance. The ability to get out papers is uh, a criti critically important task. So we've established a time each year where the entire division gets together and we sit down to write. The purpose of it is not to teach people to write. We we presume that people already know how to do that. But it's a time to, to sit down and write papers and have academic productivity uh, that advances people's academic careers. A senior author is often linked with a junior author to produce specific papers. Otherwise, people who come here work on grants, they work on lectures, they work on things which are going to make their academic lives more productive and better overall. It's been enormously successful, and we've averaged between 9 and 11 manuscripts, grants, abstracts per writing retreat. And it's a focused time to get together, to have academic productivity, and then in the evenings just have an awful lot of fun together as a group. Yeah, I really like it. I think, I think that's one of the hardest things about, about, I mean, I haven't experienced it yet being a fellow, but what I've seen is in an academic, being an academic physician is balancing that. And, and very often you spend so much time putting out fires or dealing with acute issues, your shift the next day, your committee meeting the next day, um, writing articles and grant writing and just thinking about what it is you're doing, it can be very hard to find the time to do that. So an experience like this that physically removes you from the chaos that you normally experience can really help focus you or provide you with a little bit of focus. It's just like all of us go to a, a conference and we, I always come back very energized after I go to a conference because I've seen everything and I've experienced and I'm ready to get in there. And then I have a shift the next day and it becomes really hard to maintain that momentum. So coming to something like this where you really do get time to focus on that and cross-fertilize because we all informally are together and so we can talk about projects and we can bounce ideas off of each other. And I find that it's a very um, collaborative and uh, kind of a good place to work. From the perspective of a resident, it's nice too just having access to the toxicologists and being able to participate in some of the discussions and spend time with them. If you're an NIH-funded investigator, it's critically important, I think, to have something like this. The time at which you're supposed to be getting new grant proposals out is also the time at which you're supposed to be writing papers. And if you don't have a focused, dedicated time at which to do one or both of those tasks, it makes accomplishing both uh, well-nigh impossible. And actually, can I ask, is this something that you took from someplace else or did before in your experience, or is this something that the program just started doing on its own? Because it seems, while it seems um, obviously beneficial in what you can get from it, um, 
it sounds relatively unique to me. I'm not horribly familiar with this type of thing. Well, there are plenty of writing retreats where academic groups will go out and teach people how to write. This is an introduction. This is the methods. This is you know, these are the results. This is the conclusion. Here's how you structure this part of a part of a discussion. Here's the formatting for for citations, that sort of thing. There are lots of people who do writing retreats to teach people to write. We write to produce. It's not just unique in emergency medicine, it's unique in academic medicine in general. I, I participated in the Harvard Macy course last year, and I talked to a number of academicians from different specialties from around the country, and none of them had ever heard of this sort of thing, and they were interested in going back and uh, initiating it in their institutions. And I know that qualitative health sciences at the University of Massachusetts has begun thinking about how to do this, and a couple of other departments too. So other folks, when they hear what we do, they go, wow, what a great idea. I could use three days where all I do is produce papers. No interruptions, no committee meetings, no, you know, no people walking by to ask if you can handle this little crisis which has popped up. It's a time just to write. And, and so it's something I would recommend other people. I mean, who's listening, if you just just take a weekend, just just take yourself outside of your normal environment, turn off the phone, I mean, if possible, and just uh, focus. And that's that's the most productive the most productive time. It's a mini sabbatical. And because we choose the middle of winter and it's a seaside resort town, we got a great break on the price of a of the bed and breakfast. Okay, so that was a nice explanation of. Uh, where we are, but let's get back to our panel discussion of the best articles of 2011. So we can switch gears a little bit. Um, the, an article that I found, yeah, I'm still sort of newly out of having taken the uh, uh, talk sport exam, and so I'm still very much attracted to review articles and stuff that really kind of helped sort of uh, allow me to really understand all the the magnitude of you know all the different things that I need to know for this. Uh, test, um, one that came out uh, out of JMT in July uh, on uh, 2,4-dinitrophenol. Uh, it was a nice um, review article that was put up by a, a group out of the UK um, that just, you know, this was one of these uh, uh, compounds on the list of uh, miscellaneous toxicants that was one of 34 different uh, miscellaneous toxicants that I needed to know enough about um, in, in case I got sort of staccatoed by... Um, questions uh, on the exam. Um, so it was one of those things where I had memorized a bunch of random facts about 2,4-DNP, but didn't really fully have a better sort of grasp as to really what was it used for historically and what is the real sort of significance of this uh, compound these days. Um, so it's a nice uh, review article that sort of goes over a lot of the, you know, the history about this, uh, this compound and how it was initially used to, you know, in making uh, munitions uh, subsequent to that, the Russian army was giving it to their uh, soldiers to help keep them warm. Um, following that, it became used as a great sort of weight loss agent. And, you know, uh, there was a doc out of Texas that was um, uh, giving this to his patients and had sort of come up with this. Illegal. Um, right. <laughs> he, you know, his idea of a mechanism of action for this was that it was uh, called intracellular hyperthermia therapy um, when he was... Uh, found uh, guilty of um, uh, having given this to several thousand different individuals, a, a couple of which had died. He then was trying to work with the UK to distribute the same medication for cancer therapy under the guise of the exact same mechanism of action, which was, again, you know, intracellular hyperthermia therapy. Um, these days, it's uh, something that is still wildly available on the internet. You can buy it in the boatloads. You're talking about kilograms of either whether they come in tablet form or in powdered form. Um, you can buy it, uh, you know, not necessarily co-formulated, but you can buy it in addition to um, thyroid hormone and uh, anabolic steroids. And they are there are several different regimens that are available on the internet as far as, you know, how much of X, Y, and Z do you take? You start with this dose and then you ramp up and they actually give you warnings as far as things to look out for as far as side effects. And you know, one of which, which is, you know, which I found to be pretty humorous was uh, they said that, you know, uh, if, you know, they recommend that the body temperature, uh, should it rise above uh, 102 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, the user should, uh, quote unquote, lower their DNP dose, take a very cold bath and ensure adequate hydration with water and juice based drinks. So, because if they don't, they're going to spontaneously combust. Right. Or they should just come to Rhode Island in January. Right. 
So, you know, it's a great article. And again, you know, it goes through potential mechanisms of action, uh, one of which being the uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation um, and goes through a lot of the symptomatology that's found with that and, you know, potentially subsequent uh, death. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's a, I, I found it to be an, an easy read, an enjoyable read, uh, something that sort of solidified a lot of the uh, stuff that I had, uh, had to learn for the boards. Um, I think it's a good, it's a good read for people that are interested in tox, for people that are young toxicologists, uh, fellows, people that are going to be taking the exam or recertifying. Um, uh, just a, you know, nicely written article. It's really good. It's a fun thing about tops. There's always random stories and historical notes, like giving it to the Russian soldiers to stay warm um, keeps things interesting. Um, I think the generalizable thing from that article is whenever anyone comes in and says, I'm taking this for weight loss, there's really very few ways physiologically to lose weight. And so unless you're uncoupling, you know, you're uncoupling oxidative phosphorylation, you're ramping up your metabolism via caffeine or some other stimulant. Um, the only other ways are really the malabsorptives, which give you terrible abdominal cramping and gas, and uh, exercise and diet. So I don't, you don't, oftentimes don't even need to know what's in it to know that it's going to be something that is either uncoupling or increasing their metabolic rate, and thus the risk is going to be arrhythmia and hyperthermia and, and everything else. Um, well, and just as we kind of discussed earlier about people taking uh, medicines for pain and what do they consider a medicine, and NSAIDs aren't a medicine, you ask folks, are they taking any medications? And, you know, young folks especially, are you taking any medications? Well, no. I've made it part of my custom and practice to ask, are you taking any over-the-counter medications? Are you taking any weight supplements? Um, is there anything different about your diet? Because they don't oftentimes consider any of these things as meds. Anything that they bought on the Internet is definitely not a medication. It's just some faddish thing that they're trying out. Um, and oftentimes it's the reason why they're coming in with the symptoms that they're coming in with. So it's... Uh, you know, it's it's a significant sort of thing that we're seeing in the emergency department. And if you're not really sort of keenly aware of what is out there and what the side effects can be, you can completely miss this part of the history. And like we've always said, you know, 90% of what's going on is in the history and 95% of it, of it is in the history and the physical. You know, uh, just by taking a good history, you can get a lot of information. And the drug screen too, right? That's right. When in doubt. Send a drug screen. Once again, that's not a recommendation for medical practice because drug screens have not been demonstrated really to change clinical outcomes, clinical management. They don't change much of anything other than delay the opportunity to get somebody to psychiatry, where they do absolutely nothing with the data, too. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll do an upcoming segment at some point about the utility and non-utility of drug screens. and They seem to be the vein of my existence on some days. It's always been interesting to me how patients seem to equate natural with safe, you know, because I'm like, okay, ricin is natural, botulinum toxin is natural. You might not want to be taking large amounts of those, but there's definitely this idea that if it's natural, it must be safe. And I think that gets back to what you were saying about people not considering natural products or herbal supplements or that kind of thing as medications, so to speak. I have seen incredibly smart, intelligent people walk in with a box covered with Chinese script with one word that says berry, and they go, I took it, I take it for weight loss. I go, what's in it? They have no idea. They don't read Chinese, but they have been eating these things. And um, the way that people's brains uh, process risk sometimes is just, um, it's fun to watch. It has mercury in it. It's good for weight loss. <laughs> good for weight well, loss. well, there's a fascinating document that was produced by the California Department of Health a few years ago where they took Asian patent medicines and analyzed the contents of them and then published it in a book. I don't know if they've redone it. They did it around 2000 or so. It's a great resource for anybody who wants to do medical toxicology. But some of the Asian patent medicines contain up to 30% by weight of mercuric chloride, 20% by weight uh, of arsenic, trioxide. There's also um, zinc and other, other transition metals in them too. Not all in the same one, but different ones have different, different compounds in them. Uh, one of the brain tonic pills that I have contains 30% mercuric chloride by weight. I mean, it's just lovely stuff if you're a toxicologist. But if you take this stuff on a regular basis, you might wind up with Pink's disease. You don't want that. But it's natural, and it's safe. Uh-huh. And unlike those nasty vaccines, it doesn't cause autism. How come nobody blames natural supplements for autism ever? <laughs> That's a good thought. 
Like it, it's it's so ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, but that's that's it's a great article. It's on, it's a very fun read and kind of links both history and biochemistry and and epidemiology. And that's also I think another thing in toxicology. Nothing's well. There is new stuff, but a lot of stuff isn't new. It's just old stuff that comes back um, in a different way. And so well, even if we haven't seen it, probably we'll be seeing more of that at some point in the future in various forms. <laughs> I just like uncoupling of the oxidative phosphorylation pathways anyway, because it kind of explains why you had to take general chemistry as a prerequisite to get into medical school in the first place. If you remember those like reaction diagrams where it showed like energy on one side and time on the other, and there was a resting state, and then there was a transition state, and then the line would drop down you know, like for the reaction products, that kind of explains why oxidative phosphorylation works and why uncouplers prevent it from happening. You need an activation energy for a reaction to go forward, and that's the thermal energy that's produced by hydrolysis of phosphate, uh, phosphate bonds in your body. If you have oxidative phosphorylation, you uncouple that ability to take the thermal energy and convert it back into new chemical bond formation. Because the thermal energy from your hydrolysis reactions is not going back into bond formation, you just radiate it out into heat, which is why you become hyperthermic after taking these drugs. Is that what you told her, Rich? Yes, that's exactly what I told her. Was there a diagram involved? There might have been. Were there electrons? Showing transition state. Awesome. It is awesome. I actually. All right, now, now you guys are making fun of the chemist. <laughs> no. I am a chemist. I can't make fun of the chemist. Yeah, but if any kind of weight loss thing, really, it's it just to make things less efficient. That's, that's the whole point of bariatric surgery. Let's take something and break it so it doesn't work so well to affect weight loss. It's the same reason why French girls are overdosing on aspirin for weight loss. Anything to uncouple, it's going to work. Well, the, the thing that's sad about all these agents is that they, they work for some individuals who happen to have taken them in a dose or in a formulation that didn't kill them. Right. And so... All you need is one person to say that it worked, and you're going to get a train of people behind them that are going to try it. People don't want to hear about the negatives of something. They only want to hear about the positives, especially if they're overweight and they really want to lose weight, but they don't really feel that uh, engaged in going to the gym. Dr. Church, you had a, a couple other articles that you thought were interesting too, didn't you? Uh, there, I had, there was another review article that was on Chasing the Dragon that uh, I think also, which came out the middle of last year, that was it was a very sort of quick uh, read on... Uh, actually, there was two case reports um, where they were just sort of describing these people that were coming in after uh, using heroin, but in an inhalational form, and then coming in with uh, neuromuscular changes and ataxia and memory loss. And the reason that I liked that article was mostly for the imaging. It had some really kind of spectacular MRI uh, pics that were pretty much pathognomonic for chasing the dragon. Um, they don't really know... Uh, the pathophysiology behind it, but um, this is one of those things where if you see these um, these images on MRI, uh, you can pretty much bet that if you don't know what the exposure was, that this is what the exposure was. So um, that was just another um, uh, interesting article that I liked. Um, the imaging. If, uh, if, you, if you have somebody who's been chasing the dragon, I think you're pretty much guaranteed a publication someplace. Chasing the dragon being. Inhalational, chasing the dragons, um, a method for using, using heroin. You take heroin, you put it on some sort of inflammable surface such as aluminum foil, you heat it up with a heat source from below, it begins to uh, sublimate off the, uh, off the surface, and then you chase the dragon by smoking or inhaling the dragon-like fumes that come off the, come off the heated surface. You could use a number of different things to try and inhale. You can just try to use your mouth to suck it in. Some people use a straw. Some people use rolled up money. Some people use, um, you know, like the outside of a, of a matchbox. Uh, but in, in a proportion of people who do it, they wind up with profound uh, neurologic changes in white matter disease. Yep. And, you know, the imaging that they showed, the white matter disease was most specific to the, um, uh, the cerebellum. And you know, uh, T2-weighted uh, MRI imaging uh, of the uh, posterior fossa shown bilateral hyperintensities of the uh, cerebellar white matter. So it's pretty pathognomonic. Um, the thing that's always fantastic about these articles is that the folks that come in uh, that are being used as the cases in these case reports, their typical sort of reasoning for chasing the dragon is because they're afraid of needles, uh, but then they come in with these profound neur neuromuscular changes, some of which are permanent. Um, so it's, you know, they're sort of... Versus, versus heroin, which, you know, is which good, clean fun. What, that's right. 
Uh, just depends on which way you like uh, to, to get your good food clean file, I guess. And do you want to say this is not a formal recommendation to use heroin? This uh, is not a formal recommendation to use heroin. We don't do that on Talkstock. Uh, well, I want to... Uh, that's that's uh, capping off our best of 2011 segment. If you have any favorite Talks articles that you feel like we didn't mention or didn't cover, you can head to our website uh, at, where you can click on the Contact Us link or send us an email at talkstalk at talkstalk.org. I want to thank uh, all of the uh, toxicologists uh, here for being on the panel today, and uh, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your winter writing retreat. Well, and that wraps up another episode of Talks Talk. You can check us out on the web at toxtalk.org, where you can find out about our Facebook and Twitter feeds, where you can submit your own listener questions and comments, or you can email us at TalksTalk, that's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G, at TalksTalk.org. You can also find us in the iTunes Music Store. Some of you might be wondering about the TalksTalk t-shirt contest. I want to thank those of you who voted. We got voters from across the country and as far away as New Zealand and Australia. And uh, we'll be picking our top design winners uh, for official Talks Talk t-shirts. Stay tuned for more information on that. Unfortunately, we uh, ran out of time uh, in terms of covering all the things that we wanted to cover on this episode. So stay tuned next time for another episode of Talks Talk. Once again, Talks Talk is a production of the Division of Toxicology under the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts. This is Matt Zuckerman, and that's another episode of Talks Talk.